The cosmos is all that is, or was, or ever will be. Our feeblest contemplations of the cosmos stir us. There is a tingling in the spine, a catch in the voice, a faint sensation, as if a distant memory of falling from a height. We know we are approaching the greatest of mysteries. The Interplanetary Podcast. The exploration of space for the benefit of all mankind. Your hosts here in London, Matthew Russell and Jamie Franklin. Well, there's only one person that that could be. Every time I look for quotes about space, the Sagan ones are always the best ones. He's the king of the universe, that's why. Hopefully the show will go out on Friday. Well, I'm so busy Big at the time. moment that... Uh, oh. yeah, I know, it's ridiculous. We, we are squeezing these things in. Uh, uh, you mean you don't just do this all the time? No, do you know what? We could just do this all the time. Be nice, wouldn't it? If, if we suddenly got a massive load of patrons coming in and going, yeah, oh. let's, let's just give Matt thousands of pounds. Matt and Jamie, thousands of pounds. Let's just get them so that they can do this full-time and we can get the best. Wait, wait a minute. Do you like the way, listeners, that he said Matt and then he <laughs> no, quickly doubled back and added me? I didn't even mean it. Story of my life. I know I, I, I keep doing this every now and then. It's all right, And then Matt. I think about how it must hurt your inside. It's okay. I'm, I'm thick-skinned. Hey, Matt, astronaut of the week. It's a birthday. It's a birthday for Sheikh... Mustafa Shukur Al-Mazri. Many happy returns, Sheikh. Yeah, so he's 27th of July, 1972. So he's a year younger than me, but he's already been into space. And he's the first Malaysian astronaut. That is awesome. Yeah, he went up to the International Space Station in 2007 with Peggy Whitson. Ah, oh, yes. And Yuri Malenchenko. So, like two absolute space legends, he was on board that flight TMA-11. Well, that's... Expedition 16 to the International Space Station. That's a strong crew. He was described, I think, as a sort of special guest rather than astronaut, but then all the astronauts said, no, no, we really consider him a peer, and he is an astronaut. Uh, but he wasn't officially an astronaut. He was done... He was there as uh, part of an agreement between Malaysia and Russia called the... Ankasawan program. Rolls off the tongue. And one of the things that they had to, to do was because he was a Muslim, uh, they wrote uh, the 18-page guidebook for Muslims in space called Guidelines for Performing Islamic Rites at the International Space Station. It's a bestseller. To take into account. Yeah. <laughs> to make, you know, well, it must have sold at least three copies. Yeah. Uh, and, and it tells you how to locate Mecca, how many times you need to pray, you know, because of the fact that uh, there's a day-night cycle every 90 minutes. That's right. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah, happy birthday. Well, happy birthday. Mutsafa Shuka Al-Mazri. That's a great name, too. The first Malaysian in space. Do you want to hear the space word of the week? Do I? I mean, yeah, I do. You do. So... Uh, it's, a, it's a word that you hear quite a lot, and that's ephemeris. You've been working on that pronunciation, haven't you, Matt? Yeah, I have, because it seems there's quite a few ways to pronounce the plural. Write in. Let us know how you say ephemeris. Ephemeris. E-P-H-E-M-E-R-I-S. Plural, ephemerides, or is it ephemerides? So, Matt, this, this means diary? 
it does mean diary. So if you were Latin, you would say something like caecilius est in horto inscripto ephemeris, meaning Caecilius is in the garden writing his diary. You sound like you're in Harry Potter about to cast <laughs> someone into a some kind of, I don't know, spell. I'm weaving my spell of space magic well, upon the podcast world. We are ready to sink in. Yeah, but anyway. Oh, yeah. What is ephemeris to do with space, Jamie? What is it to do? It's like the diary of all the celestial bodies out there. Yeah, so predicted positions, right, in in the solar system? Yeah, so of, of everything. The moon has an ephemeris, the Jupiter has an ephemeris, but also little satellites and comets and everything has a sort of table of where it's going to be at any one point. Got it. And it's much more complicated than you think, because obviously with something like Newtonian mechanics, you'd think you'd be able to just be able to predict where everything's going to be for millions and millions of years. But... It's actually not that easy. Because of, what, different orbits and the like? Yeah, so it, well, no, it's this thing called secular variation, which we could have had as space word of the week yeah. as well. And, it, and that's basically uh, variations that happen over a long time period. Essentially, it's random. So, for example, take a, something like the moon. Yeah. Then as it travels around the Earth, it's not just its orbit around the Earth that's, uh, that's affecting its orbit. It's got things like comets that have gone near nearby and things like that that are perturbing its orbit all the time. So mm. JPL have this ephemeris of all the of all the different objects in the solar system, but they have to update it every single year as the technology gets better to kind of make the data more intact, make it make it more robust. So and it's obviously vitally important you know where everything is. Mm. Um, in the solar system so that you can navigate through the solar system. So this, these uh, ephemeris are really, really important. And obviously in the olden days, they used to have tables of ephemeris. So well, I think one of the early... Um, eph- <laughs> Let's go with the silly pronunciation, the ephemerides, one of the earliest examples, mm. was from Babylonia, from first wow. millennia BC. Yeah, Jeez. so, you know... A table, and then there's the Almagest uh, of and the handy tables of Ptolemy. So the next time, Matt, that someone says, yeah. oh, "What did we do without Google Maps?" You can say, "Look, shut up. Do you know what they were doing Look, in this this time?" Yeah, they were they were working out the positions and future positions of all these different objects. Dang! And of course, computers do a lot of the working. I was out just about to days. say, where can can people go and log into a free one that's really good online? Basically, yeah, absolutely. All all the, you know, those star hmm. map app apps that you have are essentially ephemer, ephemeris or <laughs> ephemerides because they are they have all the positions and of course GPS literally works on the GPS satellites um signaling down their ephemeris. Down to the uh, to, down to the receiving uh, GPS receiver, so yeah, and we should be talking about a little bit of the Galileo GPS system later on. I can't wait. So how cool is that? So cool. My favourite ephemeris is that used by Christopher Columbus, who successfully predicted a lunar eclipse using the ephemeris of the German astronomer Reggio Montanus while he was shipwrecked on an island in Jamaica in 1504. We've had some good names recently, but Reggio Montanus. 
<laughs> I mean, is that real? It certainly is. Maybe it's not Reggio Montanus. Maybe it's Reggio Mont. Let's move on. <laughs> There's this little story that I thought you might like, Jamie. The instruments to make music with aliens. Now that is my kind of headline. Yeah, it, uh, <laughs> it's an article by Elisa Strickland about a guy called Jonathan Keats, mm. who's an experimental philosopher. And this is what he says. He says... If you're in a bar and hear someone who just keeps talking about themselves, it gets annoying. I'm trying to make something that's more universal and more inclusive. Something that's not only about us, but also the connection that we have to them, whoever they are. Wow. Now that's a quote. Yeah, so he's talking about music. He's, he wants to make music and he's, he's founded this intergalactic omniphonics which uh, is, a, is a, a special type of music, and he's invented some instruments. So one of the instruments is a dog, wi- a dog whistle organ. Right. So obviously, so we can't hear it, but maybe the aliens can. Gamma ray bells, so it's these bells where you take off this lead lining and let the uh, gamma rays come out. And, uh, and maybe, you know, just because we listen in the sound spectrum and the electromagnetic spectrum of our eyes, maybe aliens listen to their music in gamma rays. I'm just speechless. You know, I've got a fever. Do you know what the cure is? Yeah. More gamma ray bells. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. And he's got a cello that sends out gravitational waves, but I'm not sure he's understood gravitational waves here because Mm. it's like a couple of weights that are swinging around a, a wooden stick. And I'm thinking, well, we only just about managed to detect like spinning black holes and massive black holes at that. Not not like a couple of lead weights. Yeah. I don't, I don't think you get significant gravitational waves from that. And obviously all the movement of the people on Earth and other movements is is going to smear that somewhat and and hide it, mask it, I would imagine. I, but anyway, I, I think it's a very good, cool concept. Well, I, I like it. And you know what? More of that, because people take stuff too seriously. Let's just play some weird instruments, yeah? Matt get, Matt, get your dog whistle organ out. Absolutely, because he's written a piece of music, uh, and, and this is what he says about the piece of music. The anthem communicates what it is to be alive, since that's what we have in common with every organism on this planet and any organism elsewhere in the universe. Okay. Um, yes. I'm endorsing it, Matt. I'm endorsing it. Good old Jonathan Keats. Now... This is our favourite story of the week, isn't it? Oh, one? well, how can it not be? I mean, you know I'm giggling with excitement, but everyone's going to say, oh, it still doesn't prove... It. Shut up, you lot. Listen, <laughs> we found a lake under the ice, under the rock, on Mars. I mean, that's huge news, isn't it, Matt? It really is. And the the coolest thing that I can find about this story is really... It's all about, a little bit about Lake Vostok, I think, is, is a good place to, to start. So mm. early on in the, in the 20th century, people were sort of uh, saying that maybe these kind of lakes exist. And uh, because obviously underneath the ice, the pressure grows and then the, the ice water will turn back into liquid. So there was, there was a lot of people saying that these things existed. Mm. Now, Lake Vostok is this absolutely vast uh, lake underneath the Antarctic ice, 
and it's it's uh, in by volume i think it's the sixth biggest lake in the world and what's really cool about this is that the lake on mars under the ice cap was discovered by a european satellite the mars express now lake vostok was confirmed to be under the ice by a european satellite Here we going go. around earth this is right so um, how incredible is that, that we only really could confirm that uh, Lake Vostok existed in 1991, and only a few years later we were able to do the same sort of thing around a planet in our solar system? See, Matt, doesn't this that's... just strike you as, I mean, this just highlights what the, the amount of stuff we just don't know. And this is a planet mm. we've done a lot of work on for many years in our solar system. I mean, imagine what else is going on out there, eh? Yeah, well, I mean, the British and Russian surveys sort of knew about this from a, they they suspected it very very strongly from 1973, confirmed in 91, but the Russians only broke, uh, only had managed to drill through the ice, which is absolutely it's so deep underneath the uh, this lake is really really far underneath the ice and they were drilling and drilling and drilling and broke through in mm. 2012 mm. so imagine that we've only the whole human race on our own planet has managed to get to this lake in 2012 and now we found one on mars and you think actually we're going to be a long 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 way from getting down to one of these lakes well they reckon it's, it's one and a half kilometers down to, that that's where they want to drill to but there's no oh. technology yet that could do that. No, I mean, it's hard enough on Earth. And, and just as a, as a word of warning, one of the things that's happened with the uh, Lake Vostok is the Russians are really the kind of primary people involved in getting down to this. The British and the Americans have been involved uh, as well. But the Russians have drilled this enormous uh, borehole but the equipment they were using was really to get up ice cores so that you could work out the history of the ice. Mm. And, and that's been an incredible bit of science in itself. But, the, uh, but, but they've used tons, tons of kerosene to stop the borehole from refreezing up. And when they broke through into the lake, there is a massive chance that obviously this kerosene has, uh, has polluted, essentially polluted the lake and, and, not, and so it's no longer pristine. And of course, you cannot let the same thing happen on Enceladus or Europa or now Mars. I mean, the fact is it's made Mars extremely exciting, hasn't it, this news? Well, it really has. Think... And also, Matt, it again mm -hmm. highlights the amazing work that ESA's doing. Um, yeah, we love NASA, but they don't do everything, do they? No, 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 absolutely not. And and I just love the, the I do really love the comparisons with Lake Vostok and this uh, this lake on mm. Mars. And and I think when you read the Lake Vostok story, you realise just a how very very difficult it will be to explore this, but also how incredibly exciting it is because there are some hints that there are completely unknown DNA in, this, uh, in the lake, un uh, lake Vostok because it's been literally cut off for 15 to 17 million years mm. or thereabouts. So it, or, or 25 million years, it could be anything up to that. Uh, and the wow. ice covered it about 400,000 years ago. So it's, 
you can see that it's a, it's it's really really similar and I, and obviously we can practice and use all the different techniques that they've been using at Lake Vostok to kind of work out how we're going to explore Europa, Enceladus, and now Mars. I just think it's really super exciting. It's mega exciting. This is this is really exciting. I mean, come on, Matt. It is, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, no, no. It's really, really super exciting. I just, I'm, I'm just amazed by the, by the just seismology seems to be such a brilliant subject. The, the, the how much they can tell about how the interior of a planet looks like from seismology. I just mm. think. Amazing! I think it's amazing. It is incredible, isn't it? I mean, the word you said, aquifer, didn't you? And that's. Mm. Am I right in thinking that that's basically a body of water detected underneath rock or or ice? But there's lots of aquifers underneath, you know, California yeah. and stuff like that. As yeah, well, yeah, yeah. That? To be honest, at Mars Express, how brilliant is that? So that good. Even though it's been, it, it will have been 15 years that it's been in orbit on the 25th of December. So that's a, that's a, phenomen- a phenomenal spacecraft. It really is. Long may she sail. Go Mars Express. So, so, so yeah. Well, so, you know I saw when I was in French Guiana. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm sorry, Jamie. We have to, we're going to have to bring this up okay. quite, uh, quite a lot. without it's okay. You know. I would too. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, the Ariane 5 that I took a picture of, mm. it flew yesterday and flew perfectly, of course. And not only did it fly, and something I didn't, re- I didn't appreciate at the time, it was the last Ariane 5 ES to fly, and it's also the 99th flight of Ariane 5. So do we know what the 100th's going to be? Yeah, I know, absolutely. Well, I hope they make a big deal. I hope someone's cutting a cake for the occasion, just like they will do for the 100th episode of the Interplanetary Podcast, Matt. Everyone, put 28th of September into your diary now. And if you're in London, come and join us at the British Interplanetary Society for our live... Live. Yeah, you heard it. Live podcast. Matt, there's going to be music. We're going to have interviews, live interviews. We might even get some of our space friends from the other side of the pond on Skype to have a chat. What do you reckon? Some have already agreed. What? Are they mad? (laughs) (laughs) So, yep, it's going to be absolute. And anyway, Jamie, to answer your question while you've been stalling very well there for me, was, uh, yes, Ariane, Ariane 5 will do its 100th mission, VA243, as a Space 2 and Intelsat 38, and will be on 5th of September. And everyone knows that that is, of course, Freddie Mercury's birthday. Well, it's a double celebration. Yeah. <laughs> what Queen song shall we sing, Matt, in, in, in a nod to both Freddie and Ariane? Don't Stop Me Now. Don't Stop Me Now has got to be, isn't it? Yeah. I'm flying at the speed of light. Yeah, it, well, there's a, there's a, I'm like a rocket ship on my way to Mars or, or something like that, isn't it? They're going to make a supersonic man out of me. So the next Galileo satellites, by the way, are going up on Ariane 6. OMG. But Ariane 5, the last ES, the Evolution Storable, which seems a bit weird. Hmm. But that was the version designed for the automatic automated transfer vehicle or the ATV. Oh yes, uh, who we had the Love deputy the chief on, on last on the last week's show. Yeah, that's the very last one. 
And now from oh. then on, they're going to be using the Ariane 6 for the Galileo satellites. Galileo. Do, do you know what the... Galileo. <laughs> oh, that's a point. If it had been a Galileo... Oh, no, launch, damn it. We could have... It's like, oh, what are oh, we thinking? I bet, I bet the listeners were going, what are you talking about? It's clearly Galileo. Of course it is. Bohemian Rhapsody. And so the names Tara, Samuel, Anna and Ellen have all flown up. And congratulations to Surrey Satellites for all the hard work that they did. I actually realised I've made the same journey as those Galileo satellites. So I, I left Guildford and went to French Carew on a plane yeah. <laughs> and then went to the, the, the very same room where the Galileo sat- satellites were being hoisted upon the Ariane 5. It's monumental. How cool is that? It's monumental. So the only bit I didn't do was the being blasted into orbit. Well, surely that's the next thing for you. I do, I do feel connected. Yeah. Yes, and uh, and minutes after that Ariane 5 launch, by the way, was a SpaceX launch. Oh, yeah, what are they up to? They, well, they were sending up an Iridium next, and it really was minutes after that. From They sent it up from Vandenberg. That was successful. A, a Block 5 version of Falcon 9, and it successfully landed on the drone ship. Hmm. Now... What's really amazing is the recovery vehicles of SpaceX are in a very busy period. So they're attempting five different types of recovery in a two-week period. So that's the second booster recovered. And they're going to be trying to get uh, a Dragon as well as the fairings. So it's, um, it, it's, it's, they're going to be pretty busy. I don't know whether they actually manage the fairings. I've still not seen the news on that. I just love that ship. I might have to go back and have another look. <laughs> yeah, Mr. Stevens. So cool. Yeah, and massive news yesterday as I was writing the notes. NASA are going to announce, week Friday, who the astronauts are that are going to be flying the first Boeing CST-100 Starliner and the Crew Dragon, SpaceX's Crew Dragon. Ooh. Wow. Yeah, so that's next Friday. We all will be revealed. I guess they must know already. They must find it hard to keep a secret. Yeah. Oh, yeah. They 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 must have been training for a long time. It's quite funny that 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 hasn't come out. I'm sure that loads of people must know, but they they're just under no tweeting anyone. Russian news. Um, I know, I spotted this little uh, gem on the Roscosmos uh, website. Yeah. They are preparing to send a magnetic 3D bioprinter to the ISS in autumn. Wow. And it's for growing tissue. Oh, yes, now we're talking. <laughs> like skin samples, uh, internal organs and things like that. It's just incredible. So, that yeah, they're sending up an, an organ printer. It's not really this kind of additive principle at all. It's more of a um, formative principle where you're, where you're growing it. But, uh, yeah, it's, it's a kind of bio 3d printer but it forms rather than growing in a, in a magnetic field in microgravity and th- the weird thing is it's saying oh yeah you can use it for cosmic stuffing so it's like a food that you can keep growing and just taking chunks off oh my so you God. can permanently keep growing this food imagine that uh, and but the weirdest bit is right at the end of the article it says biofabrication for the proposed technology can be practiced on earth but such an installation would be very cumbersome and would require significant material and energy costs. According to some, its energy consumption is comparable to a small city. <laughs> it's like, Matt, chuck us another bit of cheese. Jamie, turn the power... Do you know how much money we're spending <laughs> on electricity? 
So you don't have so, to yeah, get so, up to go to the shops. So, yeah, the, the, this being in microgravity apparently helps with rejection and things like that. So it's... Um, Matt, does that mean that it would be using more energy than it would be to send a rocket up with more food? I just don't know, Jamie. That's a very good question. That's your homework, Matt. Homework of the week. Of the week. <laughs> <laughs> go, oh. uh, right, before before we go on to the David Baker interview. Yes. Um, what was your RIP? Well, it's not really Space Map, but you know what? I'm going to say it anyway, because we've got a platform. Okay. And it's Mary mm-hmm. Ellis. I don't know if you saw this, but she was uh, uh, one of the last surviving female World War II pilots. And she's died at the age of 101. Um and a complete pioneer, absolute legend. Uh, and she was helping to, she, she helped deliver Spitfires and bombers to the front line as part of the UK's air transport auxiliary during the war. And she, she flew over a thousand different planes for over 400 of them were different Spitfires. And she was quoted to say, um, I think they're everybody's favorite. I love them. I think they're a sign of. I think they're a symbol of freedom. How nice is that? It's amazing, and I think it actually does tie in because uh, this week we went to the uh, Farm oh, Farnborough Air Show and we saw we saw we saw Spitfires, but also we saw Spitfires. We're about to hear our David Baker interview, and actually mm. he points out that the aircraft industry is very, very, very tied in with space oh well i'm glad i glad i brought it up what a, what a legend and i guess mary ellis had she been a slightly different age would have been super eligible to become an astronaut herself wouldn't she she would have been oh completely so you know absolutely cut from that cloth just born a little bit too early but absolutely i mean wow we owe her a lot good call jamie good call Cheers, cheers. This this David Baker interview, I'm going to cut in half, otherwise this, this podcast is going to be far too long. It's already going to be far too long, but it's going to be, it would be stupidly long. Here we go, first half. So the first part is going to be about these UK launches and a little bit about, like I just said, about the aircraft industry and how that ties in. Second half will be about NASA next week. So let's roll with it. Écoutez. Pop your collar, David. I'm joined by David Baker for our monthly chat. Hello, David. How are you? Hello, Matt. I'm absolutely fine. And you yourself? I'm absolutely fine, considering I've been doing... I've, I've done about 60 gigs this week, but... <laughs> it's a, a lot my, uh, <laughs> my, my jaw's on the floor in, in, in stunned admiration. <laughs> well, yeah. lots, of, <laughs> lots of students, lots of assessments, lots of, uh, lots of fun. It's been good. So uh, I mustn't, I I, I mustn't you... grumble. You enjoy this, Matt. Exactly. So yes. So what are we going to be talking about this week, then, David? Well, it's a busy, busy, busy week, and it's a very busy month, which could be the news of the year. I think really there are a couple of linked things. There's the extraordinary development in the surge of support at government level for UK spaceports, and that has got to be a terrifically good thing. But it's hooked in with a lot of other aspects to do with the international space scene and the way that the UK is now locking in to things on a broader international scale. And the big elephant in the room with regard to space station is that we're only six years away now from when 
the commitment runs out from the international partners and what to do about privatization because there is a huge looming problem and I want to talk about that as to why we're coming to this cliff edge of 2024 when the the expiration date for commitment at national government level runs out Um, and we have got some very interesting ideas connected with that from the Russians and of course in the States again we've got of course a new Deputy Administrator-designate Jim Mohard, who has been getting quite a lot of press, and for which I think we should we should look, you know, in quite an interesting way at how he could be almost the next best thing that NASA's got coming on board. But we'll talk about that. Uh, excellent. So, well, let, let's start with uh, well, definitely my favourite story of last week uh, was mm. the uh, yeah the the all these announcements coming out about British spaceports. So what? <laughs> Well, what do you think about this story? Because I was just super excited on on every single yeah. little nugget that was coming out. Yes, well, I think it's 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 given people a lot of deep breath time and wow feelings because nobody quite expected it to be in this direction. And there are a couple of things that are very very interesting for for some considerable time now. There has been what is best described as an underground technology development, which has had the civilianized version of a top security classification on it because nobody wanted the news to get out. But a bunch of uh, people have been working, including some in the British Interplanetary Society, who probably weren't aware that that a, a number of us were very conscious of the development of an indigenous rocket stage being developed in the UK. Now, we're all used to thinking about Hotel and about the Sabre engine and the wonderful opportunities that that uh, hydrogen-fueled, air-breathing, um, hypersonic propulsion system could provide for both air transport and space delivery. But in the meantime, at a lower level, serving what is really an opportunity for medium and small satellite launchers is the Orbex stage, which has received a tremendous amount of investment from uh, fund managers who have looked to this to be able to leverage some of their risk. And so they've invested in a program which still is, uh, which I don't quite understand why, they're still being kept close to their chest, these guys who are involved in this. And I know who they are, but I don't think they would would appreciate me identifying them um, publicly. But they have come out with an extraordinary concept, which is based very much with um, the desire for vertical launches. And this is hooked in with Lockheed Martin's prime satellite launcher. So Orbex is essentially uh, invested uh, in by a number of European companies who are, and and this this is very interesting, that the more I see this year progressing, the more investment is flowing from Europe into exclusively UK operations. And the more the UK is encouraging that and being seen as an opportunity for foreign customers in continental Europe, in the European Union, to quickly get under the radar of Brexit and have deals bound within EU conventions so that they're locked solid, so that if and when we do leave next year, those things are entrenched and therefore are enabled already. And that's a very interesting aspect. And the government is picking up on this and putting money into projects like this, both the vertical launch capability, which is, as by now I think everybody knows, is 
laboured out of Melrose in Scotland, in Sutherland, and also paralleling that with the, with the government support for the Cornish development agencies and the use of Newquay by Virgin Orbit for sending their Launcher 1 on the horizontal satellite launch capability, staging out of Newquay, flying off coast in order to drop this stage, and, and, and which is essentially Richard Branson's development, from technology that has accrued through the development of his Spaceship 1 and 2 programs. Mm. There is a learning curve that he has acquired, which has migrated across into Virgin Orbit, which is a really seriously, really fruitful commercial end not for sending people, but for serving that small and currently well-sought niche for small satellites, nanosatellites, CubeSats, clustered, in order to send payloads that are serving that, that micro-end of the space hardware business. So the whole complexion of this, why is it receiving so much government support now? Well, in a way, there's just one statistic you need to know, or one needs to know, and I think we all do. 50% of the world's commercial satellites are built in Britain. I mean, yeah, that, that's, the, that's incredible, <laughs> isn't it? <laughs> it is incredible. And I think when, when you look at, at the amount of investment which has gone in from industry and from government in the UK, it's now returning £13 billion a year to the economy. It employs 38,000 high-grade, highly qualified people. When I say high-grade people, I mean professionally with regard to qualifications and technical capabilities. And, of course, the UK government has, has expressed desire which it is not rescinding and which two or three years on since it was first announced is on target to achieve it for getting 10% of the share of global space markets. And since the global space markets are worth nearly half a trillion dollars, then you are looking in terms of perhaps at about potentially £30 million of the market compared to £13 billion, which it is now. So clearly, this is the fastest growing sector in industrial applications here in the UK in manufacturing and technology. And even by Virgin Orbit going to Newquay, they're already going to be providing 500 new jobs in a county in the UK which has struggled very hard to compete with the richer counties in the home counties and the industrial north for the kind of return on the industries and the technologies that are indigenous to that county. And it's potentially set to return 25 million a year revenue to Cornwall, which, which is really quite extraordinary. And that really has to be seriously meaningful. So we cover both bases, both a vertical launch capability in Scotland and a horizontal launch capability for a program that is already underway out of Cornwall. So it's top and tailing, really, in terms of the provision for facilities in the UK, both extreme north and extreme southwest. And the interesting thing is that we have an American company getting fully involved here. Hmm. And I think a lot of this is down to Patrick Wood, who, of course, is responsible for European development and UK industrial participation in Lockheed Martin's space endeavors. Because Lockheed Martin are looking to move broadly away from their central manufacturing base. But 
you know, Matt, the, the really interesting thing for me, and I know it's coming a little bit off focus mm. for our space cadets out there listening, <laughs> but the space industry grew out of the aircraft industry. Yeah. And industrially, the two are linked enormously because the ancillary industries, which are bigger than the aircraft manufacturing industry, in other words, the total amount of money in the aircraft industry, more than 50% goes to the ancillary industry. All those companies that supply the nuts, the bolts, the grease, the ceramic materials, the high-tech instruments. A modern combat aircraft, 70% of the cost of a modern combat aircraft is in the avionics supplied by the ancillary industries. Mm. Everybody has heard of Boeing, Airbus, Northrop Grumman, Lockheed Martin, but not so commonly quoted are the thousands in the ancillary industry. And it's that provision at a lower level that this country, the UK, is pushing to develop rapidly, not least because of Brexit, mm. in both that in the space industry. So we're not going big. We're not looking for monster slices and capabilities. It's the tortoise and the hare. And essentially, we are the tortoise yeah. and growing and accruing and accreting and entrenching in opportunities for the next generation in science, technology, and engineering, the capabilities to solidly spread the risk because we will be supplying big markets so that if we lose two, three, four, five customers for any of these launch systems, no problem. There's another 30, 40, or 50 lining up to go on the order books. And the fact that people will come to low-cost initiatives has been wonderfully demonstrated by Elon Musk and SpaceX. Look at the Falcon 9 order book. It's ridiculously high. It's, <laughs> yeah. it's the biggest order book of any launch provider in the world. And look where they came from just a handful of years ago. Yeah. I, actually, that's a, that's one, that was one contentious issue on my trip to the spaceport was um, we had quite a few of the uh, Ariane bigwigs there and uh, et cetera, et cetera, and a few French journalists, and, and they're quite disparaging about Musk and their... No, it, it, it almost comes across as jealousy, but I don't think it is. It, it, it comes across as, you know, that they're actually frustrated by how much he's been able to kind of reduce the market, which, of course, takes out a massive chunk of their profits. But mm-hmm. what, what's your overall feeling about that? Is it, is it, is it, is it a little bit of bitterness, or, or do they have a point when they say that Musk is dumping prices in a kind of tartar kind of way? I think there is a significant justification for that because when we come to talk about space station there's some rather shock shock news from spacex but i won't confuse it by deflecting right now so remind me again when we talk about space (laughs) station because yes i do feel that is the case um and yet and yet you have to say that the customer and the user side which again is something I want to refer to with regard to an elephant in the room that's not being even seen present when it comes to looking at privatizing space station operations. But I think when it comes to Falcon and SpaceX, he is doing very well. Um, He's doing it in a way which is working, but it is a further example of the way industry and private manufacturers are able to outgun and run rings round the somewhat um, um, cumbersome, lumbering behemoths that are these giant government-run infrastructure organizations like United Launch Alliance, which is saying exactly the same things that Ariane Space is saying, Mm. and like Ariane 
space itself, which which is proudly owned and dominated by a group of governments in Europe. Mm. And when you have so many people to satisfy, and when you have a jobs market that you have to please, Elon Musk doesn't have to worry about that. He doesn't have to go before Congress. And I can remember back in the days when I was part of those presentations to Congress at NASA where we had to go and justify how the money was going to be spent and to show the number of states that employment would come to by Congress funding a particular space program. Now, that sounds pretty tacky for a lot of those who are listening right now who will feel that <clears throat> the development of the space program is all about the, the purest ideals of leading humanity forward, making mankind, humankind, progress with knowledge and, with, and, and to bring it down to the mundane level of whether a program gets funded by government on the number of jobs it's going to bring to a particular state where a doubting senator might have to cast his vote, then that is the world in which big government-run programs work. It's the way the European Space Agency is enshrined in its whole operating mandate, in that you get back, as a percentage of work, the amount proportional to the money you put in. So right at the very beginning is an enshrined, immovable context that you put 10% in, you're going to get 10% of the work out. And that really prevents the kind of flexible, competitive spirit. And I think you only have to look at the way that Europe is now running scared about all this reusability. Mm. We have just seen a few days ago, as we record this, Matt, in the second half of July, the final safety test and demonstration of the new Shepard and its capsule mm. with a very high altitude abort, yet again returning to an intact landing of the core stage. Of mm. those, I think it was eight out of eight attempts. Yeah. So Europe is now looking, and, and the edict went out from ESA last week for ideas. And this is almost, it, it smacked to me of a panic move, mm. because essentially the top levels of ESA were saying to the European countries, we want you to submit your ideas for how the heck we can get a bigger share of the market. We don't want to constrain these ideas to just our own internal think tank. So please come up with your ideas. And we've never heard that from ESA before, where they've asked for help to get out of this lockdown. And the very reason why some of these people are frustrated for the commercial world, fast-tracking them and outgunning them when it comes to performance of the product, is because it is the very same reason why SpaceX, Jeff Bezos, Sierra Nevada, all those companies are able to recruit engineers from the big hmm. monolithic organizations because they're too cumbersome. They can't turn around fast enough. So SpaceX recruited all those brilliant engineers who wanted the fast-track freedom to develop what they knew would be commercially ace winners in the commercial. If only they could have the freedom not to be shackled and told by echelons and tiers of upper-suited management what they were to work on and what they were to develop. And so these guys were given their head, given their freedom. 
put in a darkened room yeah. and told to do what they want to do. And that's how these guys, all these commercials, and there's too many of them now to fight against. That's why they're coming out. So, yes, I can understand where these guys, Italian Spass, who, who actually are internally frustrated at the way they have been hogtied by these monolithic structures and these giant multinational organizations and multinational governments. And this is why this is why there is optimism among a lot of people now, which is growing within the aerospace world, that if we do Brexit, mm. that in fact we're going to have that fast-track flexibility to really run fast and free. And I think... Although, and I have a real gripe against the general media, and I'm afraid those who do read Spaceflight will see on the opinion page a rattled <laughs> rant about the, fact, about the fact that this good news is not getting out. Yep. You switch on the radio, and all you hear constantly is the bitter recriminations against this parliamentarian or that government minister over issues of Brexit or of health care costs or goodness knows what. All this news is pouring out there, the stuff you and I are talking about, the stuff that's going to pay for all those desperately essential social welfare programs, and very little of it is getting out in the media in general. But all this is happening. So is that really, it's it's a pretty major point, isn't it, that, that really the fact that Britain stayed out of the launcher market has given us an opportunity to be really fleet of foot. So are companies like Orbex, for example, are we going to see them sort of rapidly expand and become a kind of British SpaceX? Is is <laughs> is it work like that? Or <laughs> I think, in my view, it's going to become as important. I don't think um, I don't think it will reach the levels of universality because the products that Elon Musk has, and he's now getting classification for the Falcon Heavy. Um, I estimated in a write-up about the first about the Falcon Heavy launch that it probably would never fly more than once a year, and and that seems to be about on track because it's got bookings now for about one a year launch. So until it is succeeded, and it will be within about eight years, I think it's going to have a handful of launches. So at that end, all the way down to the basic Falcon 9, <clears throat> Elon Musk has a very broad spread. So you're never going to be able with Orbex unless it grows, unless it expands into bigger launch vehicles going from Scotland. Who knows? The potential is right there. But before we lose this big government plan, and, and I think it is important, whether we like Brexit or not, whether we, like me, and I, I, I mustn't declare an opinion because it's not right for me to do that here, but I was appalled at the lack of technical information given to the electorate when it, it was simply thrown over to the voting booth. Okay, have your say, but we'll do what we're going to do anyway. It was essentially the view from the Cameron government. And a few thrown-out leaflets that were bitter with recrimination against the opposing side from each side. And nobody had an intelligent, informed base that they could go to in order to understand the consequences. And I think the consequences have been far greater, potentially, for all of us than the vast majority of the electorate, who are not stupid people, but were simply uninformed. In their busy daily lives, you cannot expect them to spend eight or ten hours a day 
boring down into the, in, in, into the detail and the minutiae. But what I do say is the thing that I am very concerned about is the fact that whether you like Brexit or not, this government has already shown by where it's putting its money that it is really seriously on the march now to getting things secured for this country and it's rapidly accruing investment from Europe into these aerospace projects. And it's out of our domain a little. It's not to do with space, but it's aerospace. We said a moment ago that the whole ancillary industry supporting space comes directly out of the aircraft industry as well. People who make the gaskets and the seals and the valves and the pumps do that for aircraft as well. And something that has got very little press is the fact that countering an agreement within Europe that was rapidly put together between France and Germany for a replacement for the Typhoon air interceptor that Britain and Spain were a part of, Germany, Britain, Spain and Italy, um, France and Germany have now got together uh, before Brexit occurs to sign up a deal for a future combat aircraft replacement. Britain has announced in the last week the Tempest interceptor fighter for which it is putting several hundred million pounds investment in and we are talking with aerospace companies in the united states already and the very senior levels at the pentagon and the u.s air force are holding continuous talks with the raf and with british industry about us teaming with northrop grumman is the company that is in the lead for these discussions for a UK US successor that will fly alongside the F 35 Lightning as a successor to Typhoon. And the British government has pledged two billion over the next few years investing in recruiting partners for this project from the Far East. So already, even before any of this Brexit runs into the cliff edge, we're already doing a vast amount of deals which is potentially bringing billions in revenue to this country, some of which is uniquely providing services that Europeans are rushing to get involved with before Brexit maybe locks out under EU constraints, dealings with us, entrenched deals that are already in place. And on the other side, and I know it's, <clears throat> it's probably of no great real interest to, to space folks, but the aircraft industry there, which is supporting the same base industry, is on a roll, and and is really and and where has been the news mm. about the Tempest, which which those who will recall World War Two, the Typhoon and the Tempest, were two of the latter year World War Two fighters and ground attack aircraft, and and the Tempest again for those who are really into their aviation looks very much like the Northrop Grumman YF twenty three, which was the contender for the project that actually became eventually the F twenty two. Lightning II, which is the most heavily classified air combat fighter. And that is an aircraft built by Lockheed Martin in the States. So we've got involved with Lockheed Martin on the space side. We're now involved with Northrop Grumman and maybe taking their YF-23 design for a very futuristic, very stealthy aircraft, which can be flown unmanned or piloted. And, and, and this... and. And there are full-scale models of this. But where is this being covered in the press? And that's, that's where I anchor my concerns about the way people are being given information. I, I, I think that it goes, for me, it goes into a, a, an even bigger narrative than that, is that 
that Brexit, for me, I have a sort of spectrum, a kind of nuanced view of it, where where I yes. because it it's so complicated, so it's ve- you know so many variables are, are in the mix. It's like, well, how can you say Brexit's bad or Brexit's good? For me, yes. the more I learn about it, the, the the more I think, well, particularly when you when you listen to economists who never get it right over a five year forecast <laughs> ever. So <laughs> it's like, well, it's let's just go for something. You, if you go for something, if something's going to happen, then just make the best of it. And I think it sounds like, if anything, that Brexit has kind of sped up a few initiatives in a really good and positive way. I think you're right. I get that feeling. And you certainly um, you certainly see, and, and I'm a great... It's why I do what I do now, because I really believe people should be given solid information. Um, the human factor kicks in, and we all get opinionated, and that's why I don't shy from it in spaceflight or indeed in where we talk each, each month, you and I. But at the same time, they really need to base these things in hard evidence. And here is cash mm. going into these two sectors at which we have excelled. And those of us of a certain age can remember in the 1950s where having given the jet engine to the Americans, sold it to the Russians for a head start with their MiG-15. <laughs> that aviation, when I was growing up as a boy, aviation, Britain was number one in aviation in the world, and we held the world speed records. And the America, we were giving the Americans a huge amount of technology. And in our naval capabilities as well, with, with marine air capabilities, we gave the world the three key factors of modern carrier aviation. And, and so th- this country is very, very good at hiding its achievements in being embarrassed about its successes and not speaking about the potential that is right there on the drawing boards and in the think tanks of British engineering research institutions and industrial companies. And that is what is very sad. And I think pushed to the edge, knowing it's put up or shut up time, I think this government has mm-hmm. suddenly realized that this has been developing over the last year or so, and, and yet the fact, and, and this is not a defense of the government, far from it, of the government's approach to Brexit, but I do feel that behind the scenes, on all these things that we can point to as actually happening, there is real progress that gives optimism and more reason for young people to look to these sciences and technologies for a future because it is really happening. And I think that because we, and here is, despite one's own personal opinions as to whether it was right or wrong, here we will be unfettered if we do free ourselves to make our own decisions. In that context, we are already in possession of those technologies, contracts, and legislative agreements linking us with other industries and other countries, such as Lockheed Martin, um, to be able to entrench ourselves for the first time through these mechanisms, providing a satellite launch capability from British soil. That's the first time in history. Uh, and, and 57 years after we turned our back on launch systems by essentially cancelling Black Arrow, even before we'd launched the first satellite, we'd cancelled cancelled the rocket. They were just allowed to go and fly the satellite, Parliament hoping it would would 
fizzle out on the pad because it would be an embarrassment. And it was and has been an enduring embarrassment to governments, successive governments. 57 years ago, in 1971, we had to launch from Australia. Now, oh, no, here we please, are. Please say it's 47, because I was born in, born in 71. I haven't aged right. 10 years. Comeback time. This whole business of cost goes right across into lots of international programs, space station as well. Yeah. I, I, okay. Before we leave the, uh, I've got one question for you, a quick answer question. What, <laughs> what year do you think we will see the first space launch from British soil or uh, will we actually be European soil as well or, or, but British soil, what, when will we see the first launch? What year? 2020. 2020. Oh, wow. Now I'm really excited. <laughs> I, thought, I was convinced you were going to say 24 but... <laughs> Every, everything I have as crossable is cross <laughs> I think it's more likely 2021 but certainly this is going to happen and, I, and we have to also say not to, not to absent them from this Prestwick Gatwick um, is also looking to do a deal with Virgin Orbit for horizontal launch with their converted 747-400 Dropping launcher one, and then you know that's that's a very safe thing. That's just mm. an aircraft taking off, mm. um, as also sites in Wales as well. So so uh, so essentially, apart from Northern Ireland, uh, all of our four countries in the UK are are in there. Three of the four are, are in there already. So those other, I'm sure these licenses will follow because once you've done all all your risk assessment and your hazard analysis and your safety uh, investigations, you could just fly this thing from anywhere. Wow! And uh, so, which which one would be first? Would it be uh, an Electron from Scotland or a Virgin Orbit from Cornwall? I think a Virgin Orbit. I think that's closer. Um, there's a lot of infrastructure that's needed uh, for the vertical launches. I think it's inevitable it's going to happen, serving a market which is very lucrative that other providers are not serving and which, incidentally, ESA is rushing to try to fill anyway with its small satellite launcher capability. Yeah. And um, what, what what is the primary difference between Prime and uh, this this uh, Electron Lockheed version of Electron uh, that's yeah. going from Scotland. What's 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 really the difference there? Is it just weight capability? It's the payload capability. You can get three hundred kilograms up to polar or sun synchronous orbit in a um, in the uh, Virgin orbit concept, and uh, slightly less with the Orbex plan. Um, but the growth capabilities will expand and extend out that launch capability anyway over time. So this is just the the introductory offer, as it were. The Interplanetary Podcast is alive! Another banger, Matt. Another banger. Yeah, interesting interesting stuff about Brexit. and, and uh, But I'm so excited about what David said about about the fact that UK launch is going to be, he thinks 2020 is actually not unfeasible at all. I'm just unbelievably excited. I love that. that. That is what we were hoping for. It's all happening too quickly. Goodness me. We've actually got a picture of ourselves by the Tempest as well, haven't we? The uh, plane that uh, David Baker mentions. So I'll put that in the notes as well. If you want to see Jay and I by the Tempest. Um, check us out. Check us out, which of course is um, very much part of that Spitfire 
um, heritage. It really is. It was the hottest day ever. Seemingly oh. no wind, um, <laughs> and so it was quite. It's quite tough walking outside. But Matt, we saw some fighter jets, didn't we? And we were talking about the fact that people like Tim Peake uh, would be, uh, you know, uh, just veterans of flying these things. Yeah, I mean, yeah. mind blowing. Yeah, yeah. Chris Hadfield, easy, just be flying the F sixteen around, going, yeah, whatever. Yeah, big time. A little bit loud, weren't they? They were loud. Very, very cool. However. Jamie, shall we see if we can do another space fact? The best specific impulse by a chemical engine, as far as I can find, is one that Rocketdyne used with a um, tri-propellant of lithium, hydrogen and fluorine, and it had a specific impulse of 542 seconds. Now, if anyone can find a better one, please let me know. But yes, tri-propellant... Uh, it was something that um, Alan Bond mentioned in his interview a couple of weeks ago, and I thought I'd better look it up. And uh, and it's really really interesting. And I got into into all sorts of things like you know why a lot of a lot of um, a lot of rockets have like a a kerosene first stage and uh, hydrogen second stages and stuff. George knew all about it when I was saying, oh, do you know why this is? And it's going, yeah, because it's it's less dense. It's less dense and or it's more dense and it's got better thrust and all this. So I was thinking, oh, Dammy knows already. So we'll, we'll, we'll... well, exactly. I'm more dense than your son. Most people are. <laughs> He's a very, very bright lad. So yeah, it was just that really. Uh, uh, this, this, yeah, that it was the specific impulse of a trying propellant engine, which theoretically could get a rocket in a single stage to orbit. But it's obviously the practicalities of building these things. But it weirdly, actually, the Sabre engine of the Skylon is a, a, mm. a kind of tri-propellant. So it's kind of air-breathing. So the air part makes the kind of uh, third part of the propellant. So it's Wow. I love it. This has been a very long episode, as always. We're trying to get the, the length down because... We're trying to get the length down, but it's hard when we've got so much goodness well, to I ram in. And I don't like to edit the guests' interviews down too much because they're always so interesting in full. Exactly. What I will do, however, is I will release the whole of David Baker's interview on Patreon first, uh, uh, but but the second half will be released next week on the podcast. Because that's another incentive for you to head over to Patreon, check it out, give what you can. That we'll have the the sort of long form interviews on 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 Patreon, and uh, uh, but split them up on the show so that. Uh, because uh, we don't, even if you're not a Patreon, we don't want you to miss out on any of our content. I'm off to make a smoothie with lithium, hydrogen, and fluorine. <laughs> what are you up to, Matt? I'm off to uh, do dissertation tutorials with my uh, students. <laughs> huge. Uh, well, huge, enjoy huge it. News. Um, and wherever you are in the world, keep hydrated. Absolutely. It's hot out there. Uh, God, it's really hot out there. I've got to go camping in Wales, Jamie. Oh. Oh, Matt, take some sun cream. I am taking all sorts of creams. <laughs> <laughs> I'll uh, ask nothing. Okay. Well, you enjoy it. And uh, thank you, Space Cats. Bye-bye, Podcat. Bye. Bye. Bye.